Open your Bibles on both campuses to the book of Acts chapter 9, verse 36 is where we will begin. I don't know what pops into your mind when we think about discipleship or or when we talk about a disciple of Jesus. Probably you picture that old painting by Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper with those 12 men sitting at a table with Jesus. And we say those are the disciples. But but, but this morning I really want to ask you to dig a little bit deeper in Scripture. And I want to ask you to accept a larger definition that Scripture requires if we're really going to understand what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. As the rabbi has just said in the video that we watched, a disciple is a learner, someone who learns, or someone who follows the model of the teacher. Understand, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you learn from him, if you follow Jesus's model, he is going to teach you how to be a servant. He's going to show you how to serve, which brings us to Acts chapter 9, verse 36. This little bitty story in Scripture you may or may not have ever noticed, may have never read, but it's important. It's important because we have here a reference to a disciple, a person who is called a disciple. But this person doesn't necessarily fit perhaps the mold that you've been accustomed to associating with the word disciple. So join with me. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Pay attention. There was a believer. Stop right there. There was a believer. I'm in Acts 9, 36. Look at your translation of Scripture there. What's the word used? There was a... The New Living says believer, but, but honestly, the word there, the, the Greek term is disciple. There was a disciple in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas, a really unfortunate name, Dorcas. The, the word Tabitha and Dorcas, both of those names simply mean gazelle. This is a beautiful, beautiful name, despite the fact that Dorcas doesn't sound beautiful to us. Tabitha was her name, and she's called a disciple. This is the only place in the New Testament where a woman is called a disciple. So let's pay attention to her. There was a disciple in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda, so they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. Okay, y'all know she's dead, right? They send for Peter, please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them. And as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes Dorcas had made for them. But Peter asked them all to leave the room. Then he knelt and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then he called in the widows and all the believers, and he presented her to them alive. The news spread throughout the whole town, and many believed in the Lord. You ever read that story before? Have you heard that story before? The story of Dorcas, of Tabitha? I love this story. Of all the stories in Scripture, I really always am drawn to this one. Because it's it's a story about an ordinary woman. This is an ordinary woman, an ordinary disciple. And to be real honest, 
Ordinary women, ordinary disciples don't often get their stories told. That's why I appreciate that Dorcas's story is told here. Ordinary women don't get their stories told very often. You've probably never heard of a woman named Mrs. Emma Gray because she's not famous. She's not famous, at least not here on earth. Emma Gray was a disciple. She was a very, very adamant follower of Jesus. She loved Jesus and served Jesus with her whole heart. She died about 11 months ago. She died at the age of 95. She died after a long career as what they call a charwoman. What is a charwoman? Anybody know the title? A charwoman. She's a cleaning lady, absolutely. Mrs. Emma Gray was a charwoman, a cleaning lady, and that's all she did for her whole life. She was born in South Carolina. She was raised by her grandfather, who used to be a slave. But Ms. Emma Gray ended up moving to Washington, D.C. She was a cleaning lady. She became the cleaning lady in the White House, at least one of the charwomen in the White House, But she worked her way up because of her good work. She uh, eventually rose to the position of the executive charwoman, which means Mrs. Emma, she cleaned the executive offices in the West Wing of the White House. Now, do you know who has the office in the West Wing of the White House? The President of the United States. Mrs. Emma Gray, for 24 years, on the night shift cleaned the president's office, and she served six different presidents over her career. She served six presidents. Now, here's what I like. Mrs. Gray was a disciple. She was a very, very, very firm believer in Christ. And she says that every single night as she cleaned that office, she would dust the desk. It's the president's desk. Do you hear this? She would dust, dust his desk, and then she would stop, and she would dust his chair. She would dust his chair. But she said that she would always just hold her cleaning supplies in one arm, and every single night, over six presidencies and over 24 years, she would put her dust rag in one hand, lay her hand on that chair, and pray. She prayed every single night. She prayed through six different presidents through all of their terms, Republicans and Democrats. She prayed for every single president every single night. Lay her hand on that chair and she prayed. She would pray for the man in that office. She would pray for his wisdom. She would pray for his protection. She would pray for his safety. She would pray for God's blessings upon that man who leads our country. She prayed every single night. Now, I don't know how you think, but I want you to understand how I think. I have this tendency not to have a whole lot of confidence on any of the men who sit in that chair. So far, I haven't seen one that earned a lot of my confidence, and I love my country, and I love our government, but I'm telling you, my confidence is never in any of those men in that chair. They've never inspired my great admiration, but let me tell you something. I tend to have a lot of confidence in the woman who dusted that chair. I have a lot of confidence in her. And something tells me, something tells me that when we get to glory, when we get to the end of everything, and we start to really understand what was happening in the world, something tells me that that woman named Mrs. Emma Gray that you've never heard of who dusted the president's chair for 24 years, something tells me that at the end of everything, we may find out that she was more important than any one of them. 
we may find out that she was a very, very important woman in the history of our nation because she prayed, because she was a disciple, because she followed Jesus wherever he led her, and wherever he led her, she did his will. There's something about an ordinary person. There's something about an ordinary disciple. Have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever listened to Jesus talk about what it means to follow him? Have you ever listened to Jesus talk about what it means to be in the kingdom of God? He said it over and over and over. He would say that the greatest one, the greatest in the kingdom is who? The one who has a title. Isn't that what he said? The one who has the title. Yeah, I'm just kind of wondering why uh, our church is different because if you go to other churches, if you drive up in the parking lot, there will be a a sign in a special parking place right there by the door. And what will the sign say? Reserved for pastor. Yeah, I've been meaning to bring this up. Pastor Eric, you can bring it up too. Why don't we have a reserved parking place for the pastor? I can tell you why. I don't want one. I don't want one. I grew up in a context where often pastors were elevated, raised up very, very high. The pastor almost ruled in the church like royalty. I don't want anything to do with that. If you must reserve me a parking place, find the one furthest from the door. Go across the street. Put the sign up over there. Reserve the last place for me. Because Jesus, with all clarity, indicated that if you really, really want to be great, you just move on to the back of the line. You learn how to serve. In the kingdom of God... Everything is turned upside down. All of your ideas of of who is important, all of your notions about what makes a person great, Jesus redefines greatness in terms of service, which brings us to Dorcas. What, What a crazy name, Dorcas. The scripture says that she was a a disciple. Now hold your breath there, a a disciple. We've never heard a woman called a disciple. We've known that women followed him. It's not that that's just a shock. It's just to see that right here the scripture calls this woman a disciple. A woman we've never heard of who's in a town that we've never ever been to. I mean, why this woman? What earns her that title? But it's not just a title. Pay attention to this woman. Do you understand? If you read through the book of Acts, there have been some really important people die. Early on in the book of Acts, there is that first deacon. His name is Stephen. And Stephen is martyred. You know the story? How Saul held their coats and the people threw stones at Stephen while he preached and proclaimed Jesus' love. They stoned him to death. He died there. One of the first deacons of the church. A very significant man. A very important man. But he dies. And the scripture says when he dies, the church mourns for him and they bury him. They mourn for him and they bury him. When the apostle James is killed by the sword of Herod, I mean, this is horrible. He's Jesus' brother and he is the leader of the whole church in Jerusalem, one of the most influential and important men in all of church history. But when the apostle James dies in the book of Acts, what happens? They mourn, they grieve, they bury him. 
But when this woman disciple in a town nobody's ever heard of, when she dies, what do they do? Somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to do something. Go get Peter. We've got to do something. Do you understand this? When this woman dies, there's something irreplaceable about her. Stephen dies. James dies. But when Dorcas dies, everything screeches us to a halt. Somebody go get Peter. Somebody do something. We've got to bring this woman back. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I guess Peter could have gone in and put James's head back on. I mean, God has that kind of power. But they didn't call for him then. It's when this woman dies. Her name is Tabitha Dorcas. It means gazelle. When Peter goes to the house there, she's in an upper room. And it's a room full of widows, other women, other widows. And what are they doing? They're standing around, they're grieving. And when Peter comes in, what do they start showing him? Clothes, dresses. What kind of woman was Dorcas? The scripture says she was a disciple who always did good things for people, and especially the poor. She just helped everybody, and apparently she could sew, and she made a dress for every woman in the church. She just made dresses and made clothes, and there, right there at her deathbed, these widows stood with tears, looking at the dresses, the clothes. I mean, Dorcas put the clothes on their backs. They showed those clothes, and Peter was moved, and he sent them all out of the room, and he brings her back. What makes her so important? What makes this ordinary woman, this ordinary disciple, what makes her so irreplaceable? Look at what she did. Look at all she did. Let's stop right there. I've got a congregation full of women here in this room and in the overflow and at the Franklin campus. And and having a mother of my own and being married to a woman... I'm beginning to to gather some kind of idea of how women's minds work. And right about this time in this sermon, what are some of the women thinking? They're thinking, great. Show us a story about this woman who sews. This woman who sews clothes for everybody in the neighborhood. This woman who's always helping people, always doing stuff. She's helping everybody. She's doing everything. This is the lady bringing all the food to the potluck. She's teaching Sunday school. She's keeping the nursery. She's probably watering the azalea bushes. She is doing everything. And she sews. And then when the poor woman dies, they drag her back to keep doing it. Women, am I wrong? Is that not what's going through your head? Let the old girl rest. Lay her down and let her rest. Something about the way a lot of women's minds work. A story like this, which ought to encourage you, can actually begin to make you feel worse. Can actually start to make you feel worse. It's not just women. A lot of us really struggle with this this nagging sense of of, of worthlessness and and emptiness and and, and loneliness. But, But especially for women, a lot of women just feel like they can't possibly do enough. They can't be pretty enough. They can't be thin enough. They can't put lunch on the table that's good enough. They can't clean the house to get it clean enough. Never enough somehow. And at the same time, sometimes we tell you you're too much. You're, you're either too thin or, or, or you're too wide. You're either not pretty enough or you're too made up. Somehow you can't win. Either never enough or somehow too much, but never ever able to please people. 
And the hard part for a lot of women is, is they love to please people. Scripture says that Eve's desire is for her husband, Adam, and women walk in that as the daughters of Eve. You continue to walk with that desire for relationship, and especially relationship with the man. And honestly, some women aren't very picky about what man they end up relating to. Not very choosy. It's just that desire to have a relationship. It's that desire to be treasured and to be valuable and to be important and to be appreciated. And a lot of women really, really have that hunger, that that hunger. And so they look to relationship. They look to a man. They look to their friends. They look to their community. You look at this picture of of Tabitha here at her deathbed in this room full of people who value her and appreciate her. And some of you wouldn't even know what that would be like. You've never felt appreciated. You've never felt noticed. You've never felt like anybody pays attention to what you do. You look at this story and you would love that. You would love to have people line up and, and remember what you've done, but nobody seems to notice what you do. It's just a horrible trap for a woman. And it's a trap that the devil will lead you into and then destroy you. Because he'll make you think that you're going to somehow get filled up with a man. That you'll find a man who's going to make you satisfied. You'll never find that man. Whoever you end up with, whatever prince that comes riding along, he can't fill you up. He can't satisfy you. He can't possibly do for your soul what your soul needs. A man can't do it. That's a lie from the devil. No man can fill you up. Only Jesus can do that for you. But women don't often connect with Jesus. They don't have that satisfying relationship with Christ. And so they just begin this horrible cycle of trying to do and do and do more trying to please people, trying to somehow demonstrate their worth to their family or to the community, doing and doing and doing. And that's why so many women in our congregation, both campuses are just tired, tired women. I don't mean good kind of tired. I mean dangerous tired, a dangerous kind of of weariness. A lot of you know you can't possibly do more. And you read a story like this or you read about the Proverbs 31 woman and it just seems to condemn you because you know you can't do any more. But for all that you do, you never seem to get appreciated or noticed or or valued. And it just adds to that sense of worthlessness. Understand, if a woman or a man for that matter isn't appreciated, doesn't feel noticed and valued, doesn't feel treasured by the people important to her, that woman is going to really struggle. A woman needs that. I want you to understand, ladies, please, only Christ can satisfy your soul. Only Christ can give you that sense of worth. You have to find that in him. It's not going to be found in any relationship with anybody. You may get a really nice Mother's Day card today, but I'm telling you the words won't be there, not the words that your soul most needs to hear. And you can do, and you can do, and you can do. You can sew dresses like Dorcas. You can make casseroles. You can work out at the gym. You can do all that you think you can possibly do, but it will never be enough. Only Christ can satisfy your soul. Now, unfortunately, at church, we enjoy the fact that you stay so busy. 
and our families. We appreciate the fact that you stay so busy. My son found the perfect Mother's Day card for, for his mother, my wife. We, we were at Walmart together, Wade and I, in the Mother's Day aisle. We're in a hurry. But Wade found the card. Have you got it yet, honey? Okay, this is what it says. Act surprised. Wade found the card. On the front, it says, Mom, you don't have to stand there cleaning the kitchen all day. Open the card. What do you think it says on the inside? The laundry room is full of laundry. Yeah. Happy Mother's Day. Yeah. That's awesome, Wade. That is so good. Wade finally said, man, that's perfect. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's perfect for who? It's perfect for us. Honestly, even in churches, we haven't taught women about discipleship. We haven't taught women about following Christ and putting Christ first, not put the family first, putting Christ first. Unfortunately, we've talked to you mostly about serving, but we've never talked to you very much about spiritual growth and discipleship as if you have time for that. I'm telling you, you must make time for that. You must make time for a growing relationship with Christ. Remember what the scripture says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. A woman reads that verse and what does she think? I got to do everything. I've got to do everything. Is that what the scripture is saying to you? No, no. You can do everything that Christ wants you to do. And Christ will give you the time and the strength to do it. You can't do everything. And the more you try to do everything, the more your soul is going to wither. Dorcas was a disciple, the scripture says, but not the kind of disciple we're used to hearing about. She was a disciple just like the others because she learned from Christ and she followed his model. But in following Christ, she becomes this, this servant, this woman who does what she can. She doesn't do everything. Are you listening to me? She doesn't do everything, but she does everything she can. And that's all Christ requires. You can't do everything, but you can do everything you can. And she doesn't do it for everybody, but she does it for everybody that she can. Are you hearing the difference? You understand what I'm saying? When Dorcas dies, you understand she's not famous on earth, but she is famous among this little circle of widows who love her more than anything and whose lives have been blessed by her gifts and they miss her so desperately and she is so irreplaceable that right there on the spot, God gives Peter the power to bring her back. She's not famous, you understand that? Not famous in the world, but famous with those people who know her and I promise you, famous in heaven. There are people famous in heaven and you don't even know who they are. You don't know their names. You've never heard their stories. Dorcas is one of those women famous in heaven and important in ways that the world will never see. But Jesus sees, brings her back. Any one of us can be a disciple like Tabitha, like Dorcas, and we should be. We should do everything we can for everyone whom we, who we can touch. Every opportunity that we have, that's all Christ can possibly expect of us. But we can do that. We can do what we can. We can serve. There's a pediatrician named David Sequeira, who's a Christian man. Tells a story about a little girl in his church and in his practice. Her name was Sarah. 
Sarah was in his wife's, Dr. David's wife's Sunday school class. And one day she was talking about Jesus telling his disciples how the one who serves is the greatest. And she was trying to teach the children that it's important to do something useful, to help people in the name of Jesus. And this little girl, Sarah, spoke up and said, I can't do anything useful. I don't know how to do anything. The teacher was a little thrown back, didn't really expect that. So she looked around the room and she saw this little cheap plastic vase that was left on the windowsill. And she said, guess what, Sarah? You could put a flower in that vase and that would be useful because that would make people happy and that would make Jesus happy. Sarah, couldn't you put a flower in that vase? The next Sunday, little Sarah brought a dandelion, picked it out of the church or brought in a yellow dandelion and put it in that vase. Teacher said, Sarah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That makes me happy. It makes Jesus happy. It's good to serve like that. That's great. Well, guess what? Every Sunday after that, week after week after week, little Sarah would bring in a flower and put it in that cheap plastic vase, usually a dandelion she plucked out of the yard. She would put a yellow flower in that vase. Well, the pastor heard about this, the pastor in the church. So one day he was preaching a sermon about serving and how important it is and how serving is greatness in the kingdom of God. So he had Sarah's little vase brought up into the sanctuary, put it by the pulpit, brought that vase in, and that day told everybody in church the story of little Sarah and how for weeks and weeks and weeks she had been serving Jesus by putting a little flower in that vase. It was neat, man. The whole church loved that story. It was a great day. But it was that week, it was that week after that Sunday when Sarah's story was told to the whole church, it was that week that Sarah's mom brought little Sarah into Dr. David's office because she had no appetite and little Sarah was getting weak, just real weak. It turns out she had leukemia. She was diagnosed the week after that Sunday with with leukemia. Time began to move quickly and Sarah did not get better. She got sicker and sicker and sicker. And the church people would visit her and the church people would pray for her. But it became very, very clear to her doctor, to Dr. David, that uh, Sarah was not going to live. He advised the parents to spend all the extra time they could with their little girl because the time was short. Here's the thing. One Sunday night, very near the end of her life, pastor was preaching And Sarah's daddy came walking in the sanctuary in the back door with that little girl in his arms, brought her in church. He set her down. And while the pastor was preaching, little Sarah, very slowly, very weakly, she walked herself down the aisle over to the vase. She put a yellow flower in and a note, a note. She laid a piece of paper down in the flower and went back to her seat. They say that that night at church, it was horrible to watch. It was just hard to watch that little girl. But that night, the church came around her. They prayed. They encouraged her. And she was dead in four days. She died four days later. Listen, after her funeral, it occurred to somebody to go back, go back to where the vase was because they remembered that Sarah put a note down by the flower that last time she put it in the vase. They picked up the piece of paper. And you know what that little girl wrote? put it beside that vase, she wrote, Dear God, this vase has been the biggest honor of my life. Love, 
comes here. This vase has been the biggest honor of my life. Let's stop and think. Putting a yellow weed in a vase week after week after week, is that a great honor? To serve Jesus is a great honor. And whatever is done in Jesus' name honors him and is a great honor. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and all of us should be delighted and honored to serve him. Sometimes in the kingdom of God, sometimes in a church like ours, we get all confused about who's important, about whose job matters. Lots of times the attention goes to somebody like me who's up front and never stops talking. Lots of times people like me, the, the, the people with titles, the people who are official, we manage to stay in the spotlight, but, but listen to me. Real discipleship happens outside and out from under the spotlight. Real words of hope are typically spoken one-on-one, person-to-person when nobody else is listening. And something tells me that all of the greatest people in the kingdom of God, all of the greatest disciples aren't necessarily famous on earth, but something tells me that they are famous in heaven. Don't you understand? It is a great thing to serve. You can't do everything. But you can do what you can do. And you can't help everybody, but you can help the people around you. You can help as many as you can help. And you can't do it all the time, but you can do it with every opportunity that you do have. You can serve. This is what it means to follow after this Savior, this Master, Jesus, who leads us not so much into fame, not so much into attention, but he leads us into service. And if we learn to serve him greatly, Scripture says, that is the very definition of greatness. It is a great thing to serve. It is an honorable thing to serve Christ. And one day those who serve him, every single one of us, will be honored. Pray with me. God, we know that none of us earns a thing from you by doing good deeds. It is not that we become a Christian or earn our salvation by doing things for other people or being a good neighbor. But Lord, once we have come to know you as Lord and Savior, this is the path down which you lead us. It's a path of serving others. Lots of times where nobody notices what we do. We don't get a lot of appreciation or applause, but that's beside the point, Lord. We understand that the real honor comes, Lord, just in serving, in serving a God as great and good as you are. Lord Jesus, I pray that today you would stir in all of us a new desire to serve you in all the ways we can, with every opportunity that we have, with all the people that we can reach. God, we can't do it all, but we can do what we can do. And we ask you to give us the time and strength to do all that we can do. Lord Jesus, we thank you for disciples like Tabitha and disciples like those who have always served this church and kept this church going for over 140 years. God, some of their names are forgotten on earth, but we know not in heaven. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would rekindle in all of us a heart to serve, a heart that understands what true greatness is, 
a heart that finds simple delight in delighting you, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.